Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Do you know what? I found myself pining for lockdown. What? Crazy talk. Oh, look, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we can go to restaurants and see our friends and go watch sport. No, 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 I'm, I'm talking about the more innocent times. Oh, yeah, I, I see what you mean. When kids could ride their bikes down the middle of the road and we all said hello to our neighbours, socially distantly, of course, as we went for our walks and waved at the teddies on their surfboards and tractors and we baked sourdough. I never baked sourdough, but scones. Yeah, yeah, sure, that too. But I was more thinking of the time when the definition of a New Zealand parliamentary scandal involved a mountain bike, a cabinet minister and some healthy outdoor exercise. Yeah, those were the days. Anyway, hi mai, welcome. This is Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 23rd of July. I'm Adam Dudding. And I am Eugene Bingham. Tēnā koutou. Once a week, we bring you the news and some of the quirky things we've noticed about this global pandemic, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. Nice thing happened yesterday. I bumped into COVID-19 mathematical modelling guru Sean Hindi. Remember, we interviewed him back in episode 46 about the risks of a second wave of community transmission in New Zealand. Anyway, when I say I bumped into him, I I mean literally bumped. He, he came into the Stuff offices to record an interview with Stuff's climate change editor on something totally non-virus related. And I've only ever met Sean over Zoom, so I thought I should introduce myself in person. And I presented my sweaty hand for him to shake and... He declined. Instead, he presented me with the bendy bit in the middle of his arm. You mean? Yeah, we indulged in an old school, early pandemic, pre-lockdown elbow bump. Blast from the past. And then, of course, I felt pretty bad because here's the guy whose COVID models helped guide the government lockdown that has, frankly, left New Zealand in a spectacularly fortunate position. And there was me, co-host of a bedroom-based coronavirus podcast, possibly New Zealand's only bedroom-based coronavirus podcast, totally forgetting that there's still a pandemic on and that New Zealanders do need to keep a sharp eye out for community transmission. It made me realise that I, and I'm thinking a vast proportion of New Zealanders in general, have got kind of complacent. Yeah, you're right. I had to fly to Wellington for the day on Monday and the planes were packed both ways. And I don't think I noticed one person in a mask on either flight. I did use a bunch of sanitizer while I was down there. But it wasn't until I was off the flight home that I thought, oh, wait a sec, I didn't wash my hands before eating the little snack thing which I'd taken off the air crew and put down on the tray. Yeah, and that elbow bump with Sean Hendy got me thinking of all the other little ways that I've let things slide. I was washing my hands in the afternoon and thought, when was the last time I sang happy birthday while washing my hands to get the timing right? You're meant to sing it twice. Oh, lordy, I'd forgotten that. I'm even worse than I thought. I guess it's not that weird that we've let our guard down in New Zealand, but it's something to think about, eh? I mean, the pandemic is just roaring along overseas. I was astonished to read this week that even President Trump has finally started saying things like this. When you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, Whether you like the mask or not, uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. Which seems wise, seeing cases are still rising in 41 of the 50 states, and in many regions, it's never been worse. And then there's places like Brazil. It just continues to spiral and spiral there, and it's having a deep and deadly impact amongst indigenous populations. Worldwide, there have now been more than 15 million cases. 
So with everyone hanging out for a vaccine, we wanted to talk to someone about how prepared the world is to roll out an immunisation program. So once again, we called on Dr. Helen Petusis-Harris, who has been on the show a few times. She's a vaccines expert from the University of Auckland and is chair of the World Health Organization's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. We'll bring you that interview later in the show. There's been a bit of a vaccine news blitz lately. A vaccine-a-thon, if you like. I don't like. You're ruining my tender childhood memories of telethon. Mm, we don't want to do that. But I couldn't really come up with anything better. I even searched on Google for words that rhyme with vaccine. There are, by the way, websites that you can put words in and see what rhymes with them. And I could only come up with machine, latrine, marine, Mexican jumping bean. What about Eugene? Oh, yeah. There is that, but... Nah. Anyway, this is a terrible way to be getting into talking about something really serious, important science that will hopefully save the world, because, as we know, there's a lot riding on the development of a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Yeah, and this week The Lancet published a couple of significant papers. The first was about the Oxford-led group working with a British-Swedish pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. You know what? Is it AstraZeneca or AstraZeneca? Who knows? I don't know. And the second paper was about the work of a Chinese company, CanSino Biologics. Again, is that CanSino or Cans... Anyway. In both cases, human volunteers were given a genetically modified common cold virus engineered to express some of those spike proteins that you normally see all over the surface of the COVID-19 virus. So it's kind of like they've got a harmless cold virus and they've put a Halloween costume on it in the hope that it will frighten your body into preparing for the arrival of a real ghost or ghoul or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hmm. In the case of the Oxford early stage trials, which involve just over a thousand test subjects, the researchers say the vaccine is safe, causes few and mild side effects, and this is about we should really care about, induced a strong immune response. To get technical about that, there was a T-cell response within 14 days and an antibody response within 28 days. And there was an especially strong response in a small subgroup, only 10 people in fact, who received a second dose. One of the authors, Professor Sarah Gilbert, said the results were promising, but like scientists always say, there was still much work to be done. The Lancet paper was on the work done in the early safety phase, so that's phase one of the four-stage process. Right now, they're already into phase two, which involved 10,000 people in Britain, Brazil, and South Africa. And next week, they'll move into phase three, which is large-scale efficacy tests. And that's 30,000 participants. So the second Lancet paper, that was on the Chinese vaccine candidate, which involved 508 participants. So 253 of them got a high dose of the vaccine, 129 got a low dose, and 126 got a placebo. And the trial found that 95% of the high dose group and 92% of the low dose group had a T-cell or antibody immune response 28 days post-vaccination. By the way, the placebo group had no antibody response, which is kind of what you'd hope for. So... Both of these vaccines show a lot of promise then, but as the Chinese authors noted, none of the vaccinated participants have actually been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we're still working in theoreticals here as to how effective it will really be in the real world. One scientist said, looking at lab results to judge whether a vaccine will prevent a disease was like, quote, judging a beautiful baby photo contest when every mom uses a different Instagram filter. Nice line. 
Yeah, and as you can tell from the mom, that was an American. That was Professor John P. Moore of Weill Cornell Medical College, quoted in the New York Times. And there's another independent scientist was commenting on these two vaccines, wrote a piece in The Lancet saying, basically, don't get the champagne out yet. There's so much we don't know. Things like how long this immune response sticks around for, how effective the vaccine will be, say, for the elderly, um, and whether it'll work differently in particular ethnic or racial groups. It's also important to note that there are a whole bunch of other vaccines at various stages of development. In fact, there are 165 vaccines under development, with 27 in human trials. Other big candidates are from Moderna. That's the first American company to put a vaccine into human trials. They published promising phase one results this month and are planning to begin phase three trials next week. And then there's a collaboration between the German company BioNTech, Pfizer, and the Chinese maker Fosun Pharma. Fosun? Fosun? Anyway. That's also been producing promising phase one and two trial results where volunteers had a good immune response. There are already some really high hopes for that last one. The Trump administration has awarded a 1.9 billion US dollars contract for 100 million doses by December, with the option to acquire another 500 million more doses. Pfizer says that if the trials are successful, they could make 1.3 billion doses by the end of 2021. Just to compare, AstraZeneca, Seneca, which is working with the Oxford Group, said they could potentially produce 2 billion doses. So in vaccine development terms, this is all moving at warp speed, really. Uh, yeah, and by the way, a University of Otago infectious diseases expert, Professor David Murdoch, is one of three independent international experts who's advising the Oxford Group. One of our staff colleagues, Oliver Lewis, interviewed him when the Lancet papers came out. And he, too, was cautiously optimistic. And he made the point, too, that, like the disease, the global collaboration we're seeing around these vaccines is unprecedented. It really looks like the world of science is rising to this crisis, huh? Right. Speaking of crisis, I don't know if we can call it that, but boy, it's a mess across the ditch in Victoria, eh? Sure is. So this week, Australia overall had its highest number of daily confirmed COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began. So 484 in Victoria and 16 in New South Wales. So there are fears that New South Wales could be heading the same way as Victoria. There's one cluster they're tracking from a restaurant in Sydney where 38 diners or people otherwise connected to it have now tested positive. Overall in New South Wales, there have been 94 new cases of community transmission in the past 10 days or so. Meanwhile, in Victoria, it's been 38 days of rising locally acquired cases. And that's even though they're in week two of a six-week lockdown. You can really hear the frustration from the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews. He said that one of the reasons for the continuing rise in cases is that loads of people who suspect they have COVID-19 haven't been following the rules. He said that in recent cases, 90% of the people whose tests came back positive hadn't followed self-isolation rules during the period between when they felt symptoms and when their result came back. What? That just seems astonishing. So is it like, yeah, I've got a cough and I'm getting a test, but while I wait, I'll just pop into work or down to the takeaways. Things which you can still do during the Victorian lockdown, by the way. Yeah, it seems so. You can see why infectious diseases experts over there are describing the situation in Victoria as precarious. Hey, just a quick one. I see that Dunedin has been ruled out as a potential site for COVID quarantine hotels for safety and logistical reasons. Invercargill and Queenstown were ruled out previously. So, does that mean that the whole Hamish Walker episode... 
You know how he was the national MP who spouted a bunch of stuff about the countries people might be coming from when they head to the South Island based on information leaked to him by the former National Party President Michelle Bowe. And then it came out that she'd sent stuff to Michael Woodhouse too. Walker and Bowe got the and job. And Woodhouse stood down. And then in the middle of all that, Todd Muller got grilled and came under an enormous amount of pressure. And then he resigned. And then Nikki Kay and Amy Adams, who'd been at Muller's side through it they all. They decided to step down at the election too. Anyway, all of that. Uh, so... Kind of all that happened, but the hypothetical southern South Island quarantine hotels that kicked it all off ain't happening. Email inbox. We've heard from Steve Evans, who is an exiled Kiwi living in the UK and who wishes to come home, which is a bit of a hot topic right now. Anyway, Steve asks, is anyone keeping track of what these returning Kiwis' intentions actually are? You know, are they coming back for a family visit or a funeral or something, or are they returning for good? That sort of thing. And Here's the main point Steve's getting at, quote, the sort of numbers I've seen must be having a big effect on the New Zealand economy. All that money coming back is a good thing. But then there's the costs to the New Zealand taxpayer of the quarantining. Is anybody keeping track of what this might all mean? Which seems a fair thought, Steve. There seems to have been a lot of comment about the cost of quarantining returning Kiwis, but that whole other part of the equation, the economic upside of those arrivals, doesn't seem to be there at the moment. Right, on with the show. Today our guest is Dr. Helen Petusis-Harris. Regular listeners will know that she is a regular guest in our Science Explainer slot because, well, she's really good at explaining science. So if you don't know her, she's a vaccines expert. She's been involved with immunisation-related research since 1998 with a particular interest in vaccine safety and vaccine effectiveness. So who better to talk to about what next when it comes to these emerging potential vaccines? How do we vaccinate the world and are we ready? Helen, hello. Hello. So first of all, we've all heard these promising reports out of the Oxford and Chinese vaccine trials in particular. But what's your view of how things are progressing? Are you hopeful? Yeah, I'm really hopeful. It, it sort of seems that so far everything is going really well. So these vaccines look to be pushing all the right buttons. Great. All right. So what we wanted to talk to you about today is mostly what happens next. So just wondered if, first of all, ordinarily, if someone comes up with a vaccine, what are the next steps in a nutshell? Well, I guess once you get to this stage, so they've run what you call early phase human trials. So these are phase one and phase two trials. If these have gone well, you consider progressing to the next phase, which is phase three, that usually attempts to assess the effectiveness of the vaccine. So some people will get the vaccine, some will get a placebo, and you see uh, what the risk of disease is in each of those groups. And hopefully you see very little disease in your vaccinated group. Yeah. So that will be the next step. Normally that takes quite a long time because there's a lot of regulatory processes to go through. These are being expedited. They're not being missed out, but they're, they're moving really fast. So I understand these vaccines have already, they've already been moving to the next stage before these publications were actually released. Right. So the processes that we're looking at for this, or this potential vaccine, I guess we should call them, they're the same but faster or are they same but different? Same but faster. Right. They're overlapping things. So, you know, there's not a big pile of files sitting around on somebody's desk. <laughs> hmm. Those things have been, you know, truncated. Right. So we know that this is a vaccine that the whole world is going to want to get its hands on, which would mean 7.8 billion doses to immunise the whole world. 
And that's if it's a one-dose shot. So the numbers are staggering. Is there anything in healthcare history that even comes close to this in terms of demand and scale? No, no, this is a this is a first. You know, one of the important things is that we do have a lot of irons in the fire. We've got a lot of different vaccines uh, now, you know, in human trials. And we need more than one of those to demonstrate that they're going to be useful because the more variation we have, the more vaccine we can make. So you're saying that we're not looking for a one-shot winner here. You're hoping that there will be a number of vaccines that come through and, and make it through to the manufacturing stage the, or the actual immunisation stage. Yeah, because there's going to be some advantages and disadvantages to all of them, but also there are lots of different facilities around the world that make different kinds of vaccines. Mm -hmm. So the more variety you have, the more of these facilities you can probably use. As an aside, I've read a report saying that depending on the method used to make, say, 20 million vaccines, you might need a tank of a few litres or you might need a tank of 10,000 litres. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of that huge variance that, you know, almost bizarre difference in, in what it takes to make these things. Yeah, all of it is bizarre um, because there are some quite some extremes really. Like if you if you want to make vaccines that require growth of a pathogen, for example, you need um, some pretty highly secure laboratories, for example, when you're handling things like that. And there's multiple processes involved. And the more processes you've got involved for each stage of making something, of course, that adds a different part of the facility and it adds more time. So vaccines that require multiple processes to make, you know, probably going to be a little more complex, perhaps more expensive. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, for example, the RNA vaccines, which are the ones that you can make in, in a few litres, you know, and enough doses for millions and millions of people. Can you describe in a, in a few sentences what it is you're doing when you make an RNA vaccine, that you can just make a few litres of stuff and it's enough for millions of people? How does it work? Basically, you are making many, many, many copies of a tiny molecule, so you don't need a lot of space for that. Over a period of a number of hours or days, you, you are exponentially growing the number of copies, and then you're going to package that tiny, tiny molecule into these little tiny spheres. So that whole process, you need a very, very small volume, and you don't have as many steps involved. It's much, much cheaper and much easier to produce compared to something that you have to, for example, first grow a pathogen or grow a part of a pathogen within another organism that's complex to start with and then purifying it and then formulating that possibly in complex ways. So the, the promising vaccines that we're seeing in Oxford and, and out of China, what are they? So the one that we've seen coming out of the US is the Moderna mRNA vaccine. So that's one of the ones that can be produced in a small space right. in a small amount of time. The ones coming that we've just seen out of China and Oxford both use what's called viral vectors. So these are little viruses that infect, in the case of the Chinese version, it's a little adenovirus that infects humans normally, um, not pathogenic, it's not going to hurt you. And in the Oxford one, it's actually very similar, but the virus infects chimps naturally. Right. So what they've done is removed a little bit of material from these viruses and inserted the coronavirus spike protein gene. So what these viruses do is once the vaccine is administered, 
they make little copies of the spike protein that your body makes an immune response to. Right. Depending on which one comes through or which ones come through, that makes a big difference in terms of how a potential vaccine is manufactured. What are the important things that you need to be able to manufacture a vaccine of the scale that we're going to need? Most facilities, not not for the RNA, because that's going to be a lot cheaper, but for these other approaches, a facility costs in the order of a billion dollars. So you can imagine that that buys you a uh, very sophisticated high-tech facility. So I know that some already exist that are able to produce arrange, you know, these vaccines and others are now being built. So an example is I know um, Gates Foundation are actually going to invest in seven, as I understand, and knowing that they may not all come to fruition, but having them ready to go. So we could be looking at a situation where there are two or three or six billion dollar facilities which literally never produce a useful vaccine because they're tooled up for one of the ones that didn't perform. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think they can be repurposed. <laughs> but that's the aim at the moment. Yeah. Have you heard whether there's any, I mean, is there any likelihood of manufacturing happening here in New Zealand? Yes, New Zealand do have facilities that manufacture pharmaceuticals, including vaccines. Now, the thing is, we don't make human vaccines. There, there are slightly higher standards for human vaccines, as you can imagine, compared to veterinary vaccines. So there'd need to be investment to upgrade those facilities. But there are a number of options. So I think that that is something that is being looked at. So let's assume everything's gone well, there's a vaccine or a few vaccines, it can be manufactured globally on the scale required, it now has to be distributed around the world. So what's the process for worldwide distribution and, and where does New Zealand stand in that queue if there is a queue? Well, that's been one of the, the big questions, big challenges that face that face us because, of course, all of this is completely unprecedented. We've never done it before. How do you distribute vaccine to the global population? And how do you do that equitably? So new entities have been established, uh, led by, for example, the WHO and other organisations to try and look at how to do that. And one of those New Zealand has joined and put some money towards. Where does the money go? So my understanding, the government set aside about $22 million. So is that $22 million of advertising saying, President Trump, please don't take all the vaccine? A chunk of the money that they've, they've put aside has gone to the, like the global initiative. What that aims to do is kind of spread some of this risk because there's a lot of risk in trying to develop and produce these vaccines. It spreads the risk across lots and lots of countries, but will also give them a dibs on those vaccines. So what are the odds of fair distribution? I mean, I understand that India um, has said we've got the capacity to make a huge amount of vaccines, but we're going to look after ourselves before we start exporting. And I imagine other countries may act the same. Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's right. And um, But there are also manufacturing facilities that... Uh, will contribute directly to a global pool. Also, India has got more than one manufacturer, but that's why you need many, many manufacturers. Mm. You need to spread a wide net to ensure that you've got a product uh, that can be available. And 
when we talk about equitable distribution, I guess, you know, you think, well, I guess it's going to go to populations where you've got people dying in the street before it's going to go to countries like New Zealand. But we might get some, but it might be a, a smaller amount to start with, for example. I think it's very difficult to know when we actually don't have a product in our hands yet to distribute and how that will look. And where COVID is and where the activity is, is changing constantly. Hypothetically, it might count against us, are you saying, that, that we're doing so well? Yeah, well, that's right. It could, couldn't it? And I think that's why, you know, a very good reason to be part of the global initiative, mm. contributing not just, you know, many millions of dollars, but also we're contributing science and we're contributing, you know, the possibility of manufacture as well. And I think if we were able to manufacture something here, that would put us in a very good position. If we carry on in our hypothetical situation, there's been a vaccine discovered or a number of vaccines discovered and, and, and manufactured and, and distributed and New Zealand gets hold of it. How about this final bit, if you like, getting it into people? Are we prepared? Uh, no, <laughs> we're not prepared <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> but thoughts have now moved to getting prepared, which is very pleasing to see. Yeah. There have been some announcements this week, haven't there? And and you've you've raised issues around the National Immunisation Register, for instance, and that's one of the things that they seem to be looking at. So can you just tell us what are the problems? I think we we had a lot of our problems have been illustrated quite clearly last year, for example, when we experienced our measles epidemic. And then more recently this year where we had challenges with influenza vaccine and also with the COVID tracing and mm. testing, etc. And I think those experiences highlighted very clearly uh, the challenges that we will have here. And of course, the issue with the National Register is that it's very elderly and would not be able to cope with something like this. It, it can't cope now with adult, for example, adult vaccines. So that has to be replaced urgently. Because without that, you're dead in the water. You can't give vaccines to people if you can't record them properly. And particularly when you've got a new vaccine, it's going to be absolutely critical that that's recorded you know, immediately and, and very well. Right. So there's certainly now we're seeing some moves to, to think about that. And, of course, the workforce is going to be really important as well as having all the right systems to deliver it. But we don't know who we're going to deliver it to first because we don't know... Are we going to have community transmission when we get a You know, will, will there be um, disease in our community at that time or will it still be restricted to, to the border? In which case, you might not be vaccinating your vulnerable elderly people first. You might be looking at vaccinating people who work at the border. Mm. I think you have to be prepared for several scenarios, uh, not knowing which one might play out. Can you just tell us what are the component parts? What does it take to get a valid vaccine, a good vaccine, into people? What needs to happen? I mean, it just seems simple. You rock up to your doctor or your, your workplace or whatever and you get one. But I imagine there's been a lot of steps in between. Can you just run us through those? Well, I guess the, the stuff arrives in the country if it's uh, not already here. One of the things that is important for most vaccines is maintaining a cold chain or keeping the vaccine at the right temperature. Right. So that has to be controlled all the way throughout the transportation. 
Another thing is, you know, say it goes to your doctor, they've got to have the facility to keep it. So they've got to have a fridge. Now, you know, your general practice does have a fridge, but are they going to be able to store enough doses at any one time of this vaccine when they might be recalling all of their patients? So, you know, that's something to think about. Distribution of it and getting it to where it needs to go can be a challenge. I think we've seen that both last year and, and this year already with measles and with influenza. Mm. And I guess you also run out of stuff. I mean, what's happened with COVID is we discovered that PPE was a thing that you could run out of, which nobody seemed to have thought of before. And swabs are something that you run out of. And again, that wasn't something that we thought was going to happen. Yeah. And now people are taught, you know, you're thinking about making vaccines. Well, what if we run out of vials to, <laughs> you know, to manufacture it into things like that? The, yeah, they're absolutely right. There's all these things, not just the, the product itself, but all the all of the support equipment that goes with it. And then, of course, the, the workforce. Which, which seems remarkable, doesn't it? You're thinking of these billion-dollar facilities, and yet it might come down to something as simple as fridges or a bit of glass that, that prevents us getting the vaccine quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fortunately, I mean, I think people are really starting to think about <laughs> think a little bit further down the track now, <laughs> beyond just inventing the vaccine. But of course, the very final step of getting the jabs or pills or whatever into people has that final component that people have got to want it. And we do live in an era of anti-vaxxers. So what's your feeling about how receptive New Zealanders are going to be to the vaccine? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> um, I, I think we need to be communicating uh, now and we, we need to be informing people about what's happening and have a population that, you know, have a good understanding of whatever this vaccine is going to be and how it might be delivered. And also that they're going to be confident about, for example, the safety of this vaccine. So that needs to be starting now. And that also brings me to the fact that we also need to be prepared to continue to monitor this vaccine when we're using it in people. You know, it's going to be a new vaccine and you need to have uh, intensive monitoring when you're using it. And that's also something that can give people confidence to know that every single dose of that vaccine that's being used in this population is being closely monitored for its safety. Mm. Uh, and that's another, you know, another lot of stuff that needs to be set up and it should be being set up now in order to make sure that we can do that. Because New Zealand can do that probably better than just about anyone in the world, mm. um, provided you know, we, we've got that set up. And I think, you know, that's something we, we owe to our population too. And it'll help give confidence and we can explain what we're doing there. There's a lot of steps out there between, between where we are now in, in these uh, trials and getting it to people. But it seems like there's a lot of work we can get on with. So thank you so much, Helen Patusas-Harris, for explaining it all to us. You're very welcome. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday, the 23rd of July. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Helen Patuzas-Harris, Catherine George, John Hartefeld, and Karen Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back in a tick. Kakite ano. Thank you, baked potato.